This triangular plot of buffalo grass is the gateway to Catherland. Here on the divide, between the Republican and the Little Blue, live some of the most courageous people of the frontier. And in Willa Cather's own words, the history of every country begins in the heart of a man or a woman. The history of this land began in the heart of Willa Cather. Hello and welcome to the Great American Novel Podcast. I'm Scott Yarbrough. And I'm Kirk Kernut, and this is our 13th episode. Today we are going to be discussing Willa Cather's classic, My Antonia. I guess one of the first things we have to decide on, Scott, is how do we pronounce the name of the main character who is in the title here? You will hear people say, My Antonia, but that's not correct. Cather made it very clear, and usually it's footnoted in just about every edition now that the Bohemians, right, what we would call the present-day Czechoslovakians, would pronounce it as Antonia. So My Antonia, a novel that was published on the eve of the armistice right. in 1918, came out about six weeks beforehand, really established Cather as a major novelist. It is her probably most famous work. I think critics would say that it may not be her greatest work. There is uh, some critical preference for Death Comes for the Archbishop. I think it's probably 50-50 what people prefer, but it is a important novel for the way that it dramatizes the immigrant experience in the meaning of coming to America and assimilating into a culture. But it's also a deeply nostalgic novel. And I think it's important to look at where the world was in the fall of 1918 and to understand why this book had the appeal that it did. Now, we should mention it was not a bestseller right off the bat. It sold okay, and it certainly allowed uh, Cather to support herself through her writing. Right. But it was recognized as an extremely important novel. You know, when we did Edith Wharton's The Age of Innocence, we talked about the fact that that novel, and looking back to the Gilded Age, was really an effort on Wharton's part to help readers heal from the trauma or the rupture of the Great War, to look back at a presumably more stable American society. Now, some may argue, is the Gilded Age really that stable? But I think in Wharton's case, she was certainly looking back to the American aristocracy that she resented, but at the same time was her security. I think you could argue the same thing is going on with Cather, that part of the appeal here on the other side of the war, that is before the armistice occurs, Mm -hmm. that she's writing a book that looks back to the really the more democratic American experience. You can't read this novel and not talk about the pioneer experience, about settling the land. (laughs) Its appeal is the same appeal with Laura Ingalls Wilder to a certain extent, probably Mark Twain as well. It's the idea that the American experience there's something quintessentially American about the rural experience, I guess we would say. Yeah, and that's really one of the big moments of transition, and we'll get to that later in the episode, when we think about writing that arrives during World War One, post-World War One, and in the years leading up to through the Depression toward World War Two, is the whole role of rural life versus urban life in American development. What you didn't have as much at this point in history was suburban life. That's something that is right. in our modern sensibility is a post-World War II 
creation of the automotive empires and the rise of the interstates and the four-lane highways and so on, it, it comes later. Although it was only four years after this novel that, uh, and we are in the centenary of this book when Babbitt came out, and that is arguably one of the first yeah. suburban novels. But suburbia is tied with the rise of the studied business class, and that's certainly not what we're dealing with here. Right. And you had, of course, then a trained commuter culture that led to it. Right. So some places that would have had enough urban infrastructure to allow for trains to go out to the burbs, like yeah. New York heading out to Long Island and such places or Well, it's funny you should mention New York because I just finished a project. We're also celebrating the 100th anniversary of F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Beautiful and Damned with an essay collection. And one of the essays in there talks about uh, Westport, Connecticut as a suburb Mm. and makes the interesting point that that novel can be read as a proto man in a gray flannel suit. Which again, as the suburbs rise in the 50s, we have a whole explosion of suburban literature. So that novel um, by, is it Sloan who wrote wrote that book? Sloan Wilson. Sloan Wilson. Thank you. I I didn't actually know the guy. I shouldn't call him by his first name. Um, (laughs) Of course, later on, we have John Cheever, John Updike, and and so on, who really plumbed this Richard Yates, who plumbed that kind of particular part of American life. So when we think about Cather, she's come along before that time. She's like Jim Burden in the book. She's born in Virginia in 1873, and by the age of 10, her family moves to Red Cloud, Nebraska. Unlike him, she's part of a large family. She's got four brothers and two sisters. She's the oldest of all of them. Gets to know many of the immigrant farmers. There's an awful lot of autobiographical fictionalization and nostalgia and looking back people she knows with these characters. She attends the University of Nebraska and earns an English bachelor's degree. This is at a time when not many women were getting four-year degrees, and especially not in these small Midwestern colleges that were just a few years into development. So it's pretty remarkable. She was seen by many as just being incredibly gifted as a a reader, writer, and a student. I'm going to jump in and tell you something you may not know, Scott. I was actually born in Lincoln, Nebraska. I did not know that. And I have not been there in more than 50 years, but my father was a graduate student, got his PhD in chemistry at the University of Nebraska. And so I have always had a very tender spot for Willa Cather, who is probably the most famous Nebraskan, shall we say. But also I teach a class on literary tourism. And one of the things we'll talk about in this hour is exactly how Red Cloud is really in the past... 10 years reinvented itself with heritage tourism and specifically by building interest in Cather throughout the Midwest. So it's a it's a really interesting story and phenomenon to look at a small city like this that has refurbished itself on the shoulders of a writer who has been deceased for 75 years now. I think a lot of Nebraskans would probably argue in favor of Tom Osborne. When we're talking about Nebraska, but that's moving into football. And I think with the arts, what you said, it's very hard to argue with. So leaving college, she moves to Pittsburgh, where she writes for magazines. She teaches high school. She places short stories in journals. Again, in this pre-radio, way before television era, short stories were a vital commodity. It's a really great way for a writer to get their name out there to support themselves, make some good money. Famously, Fitzgerald earns more for a single short story sold the Saturday Evening Post in the 20s than high school teachers in South Carolina make in a year. Uh, Matthew Bruckley of 
University of South Carolina famously said his wealth has often been overstated. And then he shares that fact. And I'm thinking we probably have very different views of what wealth means, Brooklyn, because I feel they are quite different from you and me, and they do have a lot more money. I think Brooklyn counted and it was two hundred and fifty thousand dollars in nineteen twenties and thirties money, which is not a small insignificant amount. Right. And that's that's income. That's not simply right. Now it may have not been invested wisely. It may have been thrown away, but it's still. The sad part was he spent more than 300000 So her first collection of stories then comes out at the same time she assumes the editorship of McClure's. And that collection of stories, A Troll Garden, with her famous short story, Paul's Case, comes out and is received very well. Although it takes her six more years to get the first novel out, Alexander's Bridge. And she publishes uh, several novels. She also converts a few of them to plays. And most famous of these, of course, O Pioneers, which is starts the Prairie Trilogy. It's her second book, The Song of the Lark, and then the third one, My Antonia. But among the others, of course, we have a kind of interesting religious study with Death Comes to the Archbishop later. And through 1935, when her last novel, Lucy Gayhart, is published, she's, she always did things her own way. She wrote other short story collections. She did some poetry, uh, works of nonfiction. She did achieve critical success, but she sold well, if not, like you said, not Stephen King, Harry Potter well, but, but very well for literary writer. She celebrated rural life. So when you have people like H.L. Mencken who are calling rural Americans idiots and they're living in a great cultural Sahara, they live in the rural South or anywhere it's rural, she took odds with people like that. She celebrated, you know, plain spoken people. She was crossing lines at a time most people didn't, although she's an interesting case when it comes to this stuff. So in college, she'd sometimes dress like a man, call herself Will. This was not in any attempt to fool anyone. She's obviously still herself, but it was something she liked to do. She mostly had friends who were men instead of women. She did have a longtime roommate companion, Edith Lewis, and there's a raging debate still over whether they were lovers or not. I think most people these days kind of presume they were, but there are a lot of people that speak to Cather's lack of patience with gay culture and gay people and also her religious convictions, which seem at odds. I would say that people are very weird and there's no way to know people that well. And that probably both sides in this debate have a lot of good evidence on their side. My Antonia is by far her most critically successful novel for all these reasons that you brought up. And there's a whole lot of interesting things going on in this book that I think we can get to. There are a few questions I would have from the very start. We should talk about it. And and I have a two-part question to ask you about Jim, which is why does she make him an orphan? And does it mean anything that his name is Burden? Because this is a name that shows up a lot in novels of the 20s and 30s. And Faulkner has a character named Burden. Yeah, Um, that is Robert Penn Warren. Exactly. So I think first and foremost, she makes our narrator an orphan because she wants to dramatize the isolation of the prairie. And a great deal of this book is about self-sufficiency, but also about, I think, the loneliness of self-sufficiency and the idea that one can't depend upon a marriage or upon a relationship for Mm. satisfaction or financial support. Part of the reason this novel is so well heralded is it's a novel of rugged individualism. And that is the quality that Jim admires in Antonia. So I think that's his claim to it. It's a bit of a displacement for him to be relocated 
from Virginia to Nebraska to be with his grandparents. And then the other question is, I think the burden here is really men's burden in the way that they envision women. Because one of the themes of this book is for all the hazy nostalgia that goes on within it, there is a undercurrent of a caution against the middle-class exploitation of working women. Ah. And we have an attempted rape in the middle of this book, which is probably the most dramatic scene in the novel, unless you think of the killing of the rattlesnake. Yeah, But it's a way of giving dignity to the hired girls, Yep, as the second book of it is called. I think you're right. I think, and it may be just the burden that Jim has to tell the story of people whose stories are not told right? in the same way that we have Joanna Burden in The Light in August is feeling the so-called white man's burden from a non-ironic standpoint as the child of Northerners who's trying to elevate the role of right. African-Americans in Southern society in Mississippi of the 20s. We then have our early 30s. We And then, of course, Jack Burden in All the King's Men is burdened by history and family prestige and all those things. But here we have a very different kind of point of view. And it is, I think, important for us to think of what migration and migrants meant at this time in history. So if you're in the East Coast seaboard in the middle 1800s, you're really thinking about primarily Irish immigrants and other immigrants from classically, or I should say historically, Roman Catholic parts of Western Europe. But as we get to the turn of the century, we have, of course, people from all over Eastern Europe fleeing Russian or fleeing pogroms. Uh, So we have large groups of various kinds of Eastern European Jews fleeing to America to escape those things. You have large waves of Italian migration to the United States. And that's where, of course, a lot of that comes into New York, as well as places like New Orleans in the South. But you then also have people from the Balkans and from Czechoslovakia and what we'd eventually call for a while Yugoslavia, and then by various different place names, Bosnia-Herzegovina and and so on, moving to the United States, probably from 1890s through through World War I, period. And just as you've seen every time, and you see now with the immigration debate, racism rears its head, nationalism rears its head, And over and over again, it seems like all we need is an excuse to make you the other, and then we can find a lever to move the world with prejudice. Yeah. Because in this case, it's uh, bohunk, which we now think of as a term for a kind of an idiot person, was actually slang for bohemian, which again, a Czech person, and Hungarians, which were hunkies and, and so on. And this whole wave of immigration that mostly settles in the Midwest, although a bit in the on the East Coast, a bit in places like Texas and so on as well comes through and people are rattled by it and bothered by it. And often these guys, of course, are being taken incredible advantage of. They're given some bill of goods back in the old world to get to the mm-hmm. new world, as happens with the Shimerda family. I think it's worth noting that the centennial of the novel occurred four years ago, right in the middle of the Trump administration, when there was a wave of xenophobia. Yep. And One of the things that you saw right around September 2018 was a flurry of celebrations of this novel. 
as promoting the American ideal of that that we are an immigrant mm. nation and promoting the work ethic of the immigrant families, right. many of whom come to America highly trained for professions or trades that they can't be employed in in this country. So in the case of Antonia's father, he's a weaver by trade, but of course there's no opportunities for that. He's also a musician and he ends up in farming, which he is terrible at. Right. And that precipitates his very gruesome suicide Yeah, out of a sense of shame of displacement. So I think it's an important novel for us to look at and to empathize with, uh, again, with people unlike, and I'll say ourselves, whatever we think of ourselves as representing as, quote unquote, born Americans. And one of the things you see happen is you have people from Norway, people from Sweden, people from Hungary, people from Russia, people from the Czech Republic. And there to the people who have been born in America, they're all kind of the same. They merge these various cultures, these various folkways. Much in the way that Europeans colonizing the Americas tend to take these radically diverse Native American tribes right. and homogenize them in a way that is impossible to do the way that Europeans did in Africa, but the way we still do people from south of the border in the United States. And so the political groups last time, there was a lot of presumption that all Hispanic people in America must be very comfortable with left-wing left modes of thought and expression and left-wing voting values. And of course, that wasn't true for people in South Florida who had you know, a very particular point of view regarding Cuban politics and what has to be done there that's not conversant. So where the, even the, the politicians needs to take people of different immigrant backgrounds and ethnicities and kind of blend them all together instead of understanding and respecting all the different ways people come from. We see it play here as well. We should note that before we give Cather too much credit for being quote unquote woke, <laughs> that the pioneer experience completely displaces the Native Americans in this novel. Yeah. They are a non-entity. Other than the title of the town, name of the town is Blackhawk. Yeah. And yet we don't actually see. So I, I think that's a really good point, Kirk. And, it, and it's funny, I was looking over my teaching notes last time I taught this book a few years ago, and it was in my teaching notes. But the shame of it is when I reread the book for this podcast, I didn't notice it as much. Yeah. And it should have been foremost in my head. And I think that's another good case of that kind of a post-structuralist view. You never understand what kind of a structural setup you're participatory in. There's always a certain blind spot in aporia. It's what Derrida calls it, where you don't perceive everything about you as objectively as you think you do, because certain things just seem familiar and normal. And along those lines, I want to go back to something that you mentioned about the burden of telling this story, because one of the fascinating things to me is that as nostalgic as this book is, and it very much creates an image of the pioneer experience that is not glamorized by any means, but it is seen through the mystification of childhood, which is very much an American thing. But it also is a very modern novel in a lot of ways. Jim Burden is a representative of the railroads. He's a figure of progress, of forward looking. But in terms of structure and style, 
One of the fascinating things to me about this book is we open with an introduction that in contemporary terms, since you're going all post-structuralist, we would say is metafictional. We open with an introduction in which a narrator, <laughs> presumably Willa Cather, yeah. meets her old friend, Jim Burden. And there's this whole fantasy, very much along the lines of what Philip Roth would do in his novels. And Cather and Roth, that's quite a duo that I don't think we think of as, as often cohabitating. No. <laughs> you may be the first to join those two in an unholy literary matrimony. I probably should be the last too. <laughs> but the premise that what we are reading is the fruit of a dare on the part of these friends, where Cather has failed to write her memories of Antonia, but Jim Burden has written his, I think is it brings an interesting level of fantasy and imagination to the work. Yeah, and I, I've never quite understood why the open-ended frame, and Jim runs home and, and writes a book in like a, yeah. a week or whatever it is, um, and I've never quite understood why the reason for the frame. I mean, it was a very common way of staging books at that time. We know she's a bit of a fan of Henry James, although her writing Different. is very yeah. distinctive from his. And he loves the frame and uses it quite often, most famously in The Turn of Screw. It's not unlike what Hawthorne does in the Custom House, which is the much longer opening to The Scarlet Letter where he imagines the narrative that we are reading called The Scarlet Letter is actually a document that he has discovered in the uh, custom house before he was fired. But I think one of the reasons that these frames are intriguing is they posit the question of what's the difference between truth and fiction. And that's very important in a novel that is about memory. Ah. And we're always aware that in looking back, Jim is presenting a very sanitized image, despite, you know, some dark moments in the text. Overall, this is not a novel about how brutal the, the experience of farming in Nebraska was. It's a novel about the triumph of the human spirit. Well, and you know, it's interesting because when you read Paul's case, and it's the same kind of transition I see with Edith Wharton. And when you read Edith Wharton's early novel, The House of Mirth, you can tell that her mentor is Henry James. And that pretty much reads like Diet Henry James in, in every imaginable way. Just not to downplay how good that book is and how important it is in terms of American naturalism and the idea of a woman being trapped by her lack of choices and all that. And you read this short story, Paul's Case, written in 1905. You have a similar end of the 19th century literary style. It does not. But this book, which predates, you know, think of how everything is different by the 20s. So in the same way that the Age of Innocence reads like it's written in the 20s coming out in 1920. You think of Fitzgerald's style that starts off as a little bit of that kind of pre-World War I style, but very swiftly grows in a mature style with better short stories and The Great Gatsby, right? This fluid uh, 20th century style and Hemingway and the people who are coming up at the same time and along parallel tracks like Dashiell Hammett. And for that matter, all the other prose writers, John Dos Passos, or all the people we could name, uh, there is a real change in how people are writing at this point in time. It's less obscure. 
less officious, less stuffy, less complex. Lex Victorian. Less Victorian. And so that's what's interesting to me is this book in most ways reads so fluidly and smoothly that I think to your everyday reader, this book could have been written last year, except for two, yeah. two giant challenges. One challenge is if it's a young reader who's been raised on Netflix and video games, there's a serious lack of melodrama and dramatic moments in it. Um, it is instead a slow, mature, you know, uh, it's almost like the, all the focus here and how the seasons change. And we have the seasons of life changing throughout this book. And it just slowly swells along and you ride along with it. And so there's a, I think, a patience and maturity to the book. And I was looking at some online reviews and there are a lot of young readers giving it one star reviews because nothing big happens in it. <laughs> <laughs> and at the same time, you know, nothing like an alien invasion that would have really set this book upright. But at, yeah. at the same time, it, it, that it's so modern in terms of stylistics, it is so Victorian in terms of some of the values, you know, don't go off and fool around with these young guys are going to get you pregnant and run away. You're going to hurt your good name, stay home, yeah. you know, focus on the work, focus on the land, focus on saving your money. So we think of how Fitzgerald and well, Joyce before that, and Joyce does predate this, I guess I should point out, but how Joyce and then later Fitzgerald and Hemingway and the other writers of American modernism. And this is, I think, I think we call this latter day realism. It's not really naturalism, maybe a bit naturalistic. They are all about rejecting Victorian values as we discussed at length in our right. Sun Also Rises episode here. She doesn't really do that. So it's a curious book. You know, you think of the movies that come out that seem to take the art seriously, but at the same time, harken back to older values and they make aged church going families feel kind of secure and happy with the work of art in those cases. This has a little bit of that, although, at, like you said, it subtly challenges in certain ways as well. One way to understand what you're saying there is in a subsequent novel that Cather did came out in 1923 called One of Ours. That was harshly, harshly panned at the time for presuming that the Great War had been fought for good reasons and went totally counter to the more modernist impulse of, or the more cynical impulse uh, that we would see in, for example, in, in our time or a farewell to arms, that there's no such thing as dignity or victory or nobility. So I do think that Cather's values are definitely not modern, but there is a very modern, almost imagistic quality to the writing. One of the most famous moments uh, of scenery in the novel, and that's one of the things we should emphasize, there is a lot of time spent on describing landscapes, on describing settings, on describing housewares. But one of the more famous passages occurs in chapter 14. Yeah. And he and Antonia are walking around. It's not too far from the end of the book. Presently, we saw a curious thing. There were no clouds. The sun was going down in a limpid gold washed sky. Just as the lower edge of the red disc rested on the high fields against the horizon, a great black figure suddenly appeared on the face of the sun. We sprang to our feet, straining our eyes toward it. In a moment, we realized what it was. On some upland farm, a plow had been left standing in the field. The sun was sinking just behind it. Magnified across the distance by the 
horizontal light, it stood out against the sun and was exactly contained within the circle of the disc, the handles, the tongue, the share, black against the molten red. There it was, heroic in size, a picture riding on the sun. That image, by the way, inspired the cover of the novel in 1918, the original first edition of it. So there is a lot of effort to find some sort of heroism in the prairie, some sort of grandeur in this vista of what other characters are saying looks like just an (laughs) endless field. I think imagism is actually important, that whole notion of the big movement of poetry at its exact same time is really locating ideas in things and showing how things you can perceive and see and feel in touch with your, with again, sensual imagery, the imagery of the senses is kind of how you should get ideas across. Don't preach them, show them. And it's really, you could argue a predecessor to the show don't tell and the iceberg theory of Hemingway and all that is showing up in images. And so I think that's really astute and a good point there. Kirk. So the opening book is in, in a qu- kind of way, it is about the garden, right? They're, they're pulling work from the land that he is, although he's the son of these Virginian mm-hmm. people. Now he's living with his grandparents. Maybe the other reason he's an orphan is it gives him an excuse to seek out the immigrant kids or the other farm kids out in the farm country away from the little town. And it's the only people he has as peers and is unique because of all that part where he grows up. He's the only kid of American roots. The rest of them are first generation or second generation immigrant kids. And, but there is this holding on to innocence, but we know that there's a darkness underlying. So it's shown in the book again, through a pretty obvious symbol where Jim is this young boy who's got this continuing kind of big sister connection and crush on Antonia, who's three or four years older than him. They're, playing around in a prairie dog town and a really large rattlesnake comes out. He's kind of sluggish as he weaves his head. Jim takes up a big stick and just whacks him, gets a lucky blow in and just beats the the snake to death. Now I'm very much, it's mammals versus reptiles all the way back to Genesis and the land of the lost television show. You know, those reptile men, the sleaze stacks move so slowly yet we're so scary somehow on that show. And it defies all description, but here, it seems pretty clear. They're trying to suppress that serpent who will pull them out of Eden, but it's not long after that that her father, driven to desperation of just, and it's not desperation of any moment of fear or any moment of horror. It's not like a crisis moment. He doesn't survive. Rather, it's the day-to-day grind of horrible unhappiness. Part of it is his, his wife is not exactly the most compelling um, helpmate in the world. And part of it is he's just not cut out for it. Like you say, he's a musician. He had friends who were these learned persons. They would have great debates. He was a, a craftsman, not a kind of blue, you know, blue collar wage earner in the way that we tend to simplify these things these days. Rather, he was a, he was a master artisan and he can't practice it in this new world. There's, he loses a sense of pride and he isn't pulling any kind of strength from the earth. And so he commits suicide. So there we see the horror and darkness of it and what it does to the family and how the older brother who has no respect for right. anyone, particularly immediately puts Antonia into harness, doesn't worry about her education, doesn't worry about whether she is physically as a young tweener, young teenage girl physically able to do the kind of farm work that um, can break down grown men. 
and but he throws her into that. And so we see there that, right. you know, there's all this nostalgic haze, a sanitized view, but there is this dark serpent underneath. And I think, you know, one of the things that this book is also about is, of course, it is a story of class. And so when we get to book two and Antonia, and when you read the novel, it, it is five books. I inadvertently said in the outline somewhere it's three because I think of it that way almost, but it's five books. But the first book occupies probably 45% of the real mm-hmm. estate of the novel, maybe 50%. Then the other ones are all in the second half of the book. But when we get to town, it is about Jim coming of age, but it's about how these immigrant girls come to town and how they're treated partly because they're immigrants, partly because they're working class. They're not, they may own land, but it's poor land. They don't own nice town property as well. And you see these kind of different ways that they are regarded by the different people in town. Antonia is a domestic. She, you know, gets her foot in the door by being a housekeeper, essentially, and and a kind of nanny to the Harlings. At the same time, it's a novel that celebrates at least the dream of upward mobility. On the one hand, we have the Russian roommates, whether they're brothers or a couple, we don't know, Pavlov and Paul, who, like Mr. Shemerda, have very despondent experiences. And it's telling that we're doing this episode right in the middle of Russian aggression against the Ukraine. Yeah. Because... Pavlov and Paul are uh, from that region, and there's an explicit reference to Ukraine in the novel, which jumped out at me at this time. It calls upon a folktale about rural Russians throwing a bride and groom to the wolves in order to escape and it's an it's an allegory of what you have to do to survive in the in the wilderness yep but those stories are cal- counterbalanced by the story of uh, Lena and Tiny, both of whom become very prosperous through their artisanal crafts. Yeah. Lena becomes a, a seamstress uh, and a dressmaker. And Tiny, she is a hotel keeper by the end of the novel. And just hearing that, you know, when this novel is, is being written is when we have the Bolshevik revolutions being resolved in parts of Russia and the Russian Empire had control of Ukraine. And over the next four years, of course, they're going to you know, morph into the Soviet Union and take over to Ukraine, which has for a very brief time its own government here following World War One and collapse of Russian Empire, collapse of right. the Austrian Hungarian Empire. They're going to have a little while of, of their own independence before, again, they're subsumed by the Russian bear not far away. And when we see these girls and they all want to go, they have the dances and you have someone like Mrs. Harling who very much is wanting to elevate them, have them learn domestic skills so that they can find. And, and again, it's a very old fashioned notion. If you're a decent girl of skills, you'll find a decent guy and not just someone who wants to sleep with you. Mm-hmm. And then they'll help you. But you have to be picky because a lot of the men are just wanting to take advantage of you and not wanting to buy the cow after they've sampled the milk, to use the old euphemism. But at the same time, it's important, Mrs. Harling, that the girls know their place. So you have that subtle patronage system. It's it's a more implicit, subtle version of the same thing you see in the relationship between farm plantation owners and sharecroppers in the South. And they'll help pay for this African-American family's doctor bills and help them out with it harvest time. So long as they know their place and don't challenge the system. 
And the minute that happens, all bets are off. And so she gets mad at Antonia when she decides to keep going to dances and keep basically being a young woman in love with life instead of someone who's utterly trapped by circumstances and by the rules of domestic society. And she's a little more willing to go her own way. Now, the guy that gets obsessed with her, and we hear over and over again these stories of how older men get obsessed with these young women, older married men, and how the young women's reputations are fraught or ruined because of it. So there's an old guy who gets obsessed with Lena, whose wife goes crazy and comes after her with a knife. And then we have Wick Cutter, which sounds to me very Freudian in some way, especially when the attempted rape happens when Antonia is not there. This is the one you were referencing earlier, because there's a couple of scenes I guess it could be pointing to. And she's asked Jim to come stay at the house. And he actually starts molesting Jim, who somewhat fights back. But it's very weird because Jim runs and escapes and doesn't want anyone to know about her or anyone to hear about it because he thinks he'll be made fun of for it. But it does make you think of women who are victims of sexual advances and sexual abuse who don't want to know about it because they're ashamed it happened. They're ashamed they'll be judged for it. Right. And it's a very weird sequence one way or the other. And of course, his eventual outcome is to go. He's so scared his wife will inherit his property. They hate each other so much that he buys a pistol, kills her, and then kills himself soon after, just after he gets witnesses to show he outlived her. And so she didn't inherit the property. And like many of the characters in the book, that was based on an actual person that Cather knew by the last name of Bentley and the whole diversion about buying the wife a ticket to putting her on a train and then him racing back to the house to be able to commit this assault was apparently one of the local legends that she had heard about. The same is true of the man who seduces Antonia and fathers her first child. One of the things we ought to note is this is one of the earliest novels that I can think of, other than maybe The Scarlet Letter, in which a woman is seduced but doesn't pay the price of being fallen. And in many ways, Antonia does not suffer for having sex outside of marriage. And a child out of out of wedlock. You know, The Scarlet Letter, that's the whole growth process is she has to right. learn that she doesn't deserve to be ostracized. But here there's really no hint of that. I mean, people are upset. But at the same time, the minute that Jim sees her with this child and other characters see her with this child, it's just clear that she is a natural mother. Yeah. And it's never an issue with her eventual husband with whom she has a huge brood of kids. So it's a way of saying those dangers are out there, but also it's not going to end like the House of Mirth in death in suicide or like maggie girl of the streets by stephen crane which at first they wouldn't publish because it's so horrible the the daughter of of irish immigrants whose mother very was a stone blind drunk very hypocritically kicked her out of the house for spending a night out with the guy and is supposedly a fallen woman at that point yeah it's interesting and you get a feeling she went through a bit of a rough time where there was some discussion and judgment and i think i wonder if we're digging really deep kurt if there's a bit of a class divide there in that people from the so-called upper so-called respectable classes and of course in little towns all those classes are much more tightly knit than they are in big cities everyone knows everyone and you might have a few on top and a few on bottom most people kind of gravitate you know the center of gravity is in the middle somewhere mm-hmm. and it maybe they didn't really have high expectations for that class of young women too and so they didn't judge them as seriously and you see this playing out in other ways around the country at different times as well 
The other thing that's a little bit curious is that when she finds the man who will stay by her and not judge her for that indiscretion and raise her child as if they were his own and who all these things, that guy is also an immigrant from Bohemia. So it's interesting that she doesn't quite cross whatever the ethnic line is when it's nationally based and have her marry a guy who has American roots. Right. But I think, you know, one of the things that she's also doing here is she's undoing, although, as we said, there's one place where she critically fumbles the ball with Native Americans. Yeah. She's still undoing the kind of whitewashing of westward expansion, that it's just this wave of English settler. Well, I don't know. They're still all white, but it's not simply the people from the English tradition who move west. You have the Germans and Swedes. And of course, as we know, the group who moves to Texas is substantive portion right. of American settlers in Texas include slaves and free African-Americans who are not necessarily happy yeah. about being forced to go to Texas during that time. So there's always a tendency to make it the kind of English, Scots, Irish people. And, and she's pointing out at a time when there's still a lot of bigotry against these kind of immigrants, that these guys are a part of the American story, as you as you said earlier. Right. Um, there seems to be one of the ways that a professor you and I both know discusses novels in terms of the Antaeus myth. And there's some early criticism on this. And Antaeus is the Greek giant that hurt one of the ones Hercules wrestles. And as long as it's, he's a, he's a child of Gaia, the earth, and as long as his feet touch the ground, you couldn't throw him. He's impervious. He's stronger than anything. But the minute Hercules can get him away from the earth, he's Hercules can handle him because as long as he stays in touch with the earth, there's a, a power and a, a value and a way to sustain yourself that's pulled. And that's reflected of course, by the plow against the sun at the end of the book. And so you, on one hand, you get someone like Lena who leaves the farm and flourishes in urban environments, first the town, then the city. And then of course you have Antonia where the urban environments undo her. And it's only by retreating back to the farm, she comes into her full super matriarchal power, if you will, as a kind of earth goddess herself. I don't know. It's interesting how she weaves in and out of this. And again, it's a slow moving story with not lots of drama, but lots of reality that I think maybe that reality is what people find comforting about it as well. And we should note that in this period of time, this is one of the, the reliance on that myth is another way I think in which this novel is sneakily modernist. I mean, this is the period of time in which Greek legends or Greek history is generally the framework with which we understand the, the modernist experience. And I don't think T.S. Eliot ever, T.S. Right. Eliot, a Midwesterner himself, I don't think he ever congratulated yeah. Willa Cather for writing this novel, but certainly his famous claim about Ulysses understanding the vast panorama of contemporary history by looking back to myths as structures, that fits perfectly in with this time. And it, and it tells you again how writers didn't simply nostalgize, but they were looking for structures that made experience relatable and gave us models for survival. As we move through the book, anytime you have a story that is told by a frame narrator and it's really someone else's story, there's always a question, how much do I want my narrator to be a central character? So in the same way that the protagonist of The Great Gatsby is not Nick Carraway, it's Gatsby. Right. We All the focus is on Gatsby and what Nick does before he shows up in The Great Gatsby and what he does after is, is pretty scant 
in that book. Although lately there's been kind of a literary melodrama, literary mystery that tries to essay that. Although you and I have talked, we it's not necessarily a bad book, but I don't think it's really Nick Carraway that's in that book. There's a Jake Barnes novel or two out there as well. And that's not a framed story. He is a protagonist. In this case, Antonia is the protagonist for the first half of the book and the last quarter of the book, but it becomes a gem story for a while in between there, which is curious. I'm, you know, I'm not sure there are little details like the woman speaker who steps up the frame or our Cather, you know, implied author narrator says she never sees Jim because she does not like his wife. Then we hear all this about Jim and who clearly has a love for Antonia that goes back and forth between romantic love, which is never allowed by her to come to fruition. Even at one point asks why she won't kiss him. And her reaction is to get mad when she hears that Lena has. We probably have some fictional elements of Antonia come from Cather's personality, but she really is Jim Burden. She's the one that they all say, you're too good for this little town. You're too smart. You've got to get educated and get away. And that's what Jim does, just like she does. But of course, Antonia is not only Antonia. She's also in a kind of symbolic synecdoche. She is the land of Nebraska. She's the plains. She's the farmland. And that's also what he's so in love with. I want to extrapolate a little bit on what you said here, because I've always felt that this novel is very important for young men and older men, I guess, to read. I think of this book as the greatest novel of platonic male-female friendships. Yeah. And Cather was very insistent that this novel would not be a romance between Jim and Antonia, but a friendship. And again, we're dealing with the fact that this is a woman writer kind of projecting herself into a male persona. You know, we live in such a deterministic culture, and I, I sometimes get very, very impatient when I read popular opinion pieces, can men and women really be good friends without sexual appetites getting in the way? And, you know, I will tell you, I have many, many rich and rewarding friendships with women that would never enter my mind to be romantic. But at the same time, I feel that affection and concern about them that maybe Jim does. Well, I hate that line in The Sun Also Rises, that the only way there's friendship between men and women is if they also, there's romantic love there as well. And I've never believed that. Yeah. I've never thought it was remotely true. And I think most grown men and women don't necessarily feel that way if they've yeah. evolved and matured to a certain point. Maybe you could say that's one of Hemingway's many, many issues as a human, leaving aside the character who says that, that he never maybe quite evolves to that level. Although I think he did. He has yeah. Sylvia Beach and people like that. He has these great relationships with. And Well, it requires a certain relaxing of the masculine belief that you have to be macho or sexually aggressive or whatever to be a man. I think institutions also get in the way and norms and this whole idea of what relationships are. I was talking to somebody yesterday and they were telling me the story that a friend of hers, the friend's husband had dropped another friend because the the wife was concerned about their liking each other's posts on Facebook. And I could not think of anything absolutely sillier. And it just seems like that so limits us in life when we say we can't have friendships with certain people because it's just not quote unquote appropriate. So I love the fact that Jim is friend. And I think that last scene where he goes and visits her and her children 
is absolutely beautiful. And that really brings home what you're saying, because as a young man coming back to check on her, maybe there's still some of that romantic love there. Yeah. But when he goes to see her as an older married guy who's had a long uh, marriage and she's had all these kids and with her husband and he wants to spend more time with her husband, he wants to take her sons on hunting trips and things like that. It is purely platonic. It is. And of course, maybe that's another reason he grows up without siblings. This is the sister he didn't have. These can become younger siblings he never had too. But he also has those relationships to a lesser extent with Lena and Tiny. And it's funny because if Lena, at first he wants to take it further and she puts the brakes on a little bit, but wants him to still keep dating. And then she's kind of getting serious. He says, I can't stay. I've got to leave. In a way, he's able to deny her in a way he probably never would have Antonia. And of course, although she's told him, I'll never get married, there is a real ambiguous element to those last pages of the section with Lena when he leaves to go back to school. You get the feeling that if he wants to get more serious of her, it could happen. Yeah. But he's not going to let himself do that because she doesn't represent what Antonia does. And he's got to leave the past behind to move on into the future. I guess what we're saying there is there's a purity of friendship that transcends that romantic sexual desire. And that's that's one of the things I value most about the book. I agree. I'll give you another example. I've been doing some work on Sam Shepard and recently, and he died at the age of 73 from Lou Gehrig's disease. And in the last decade or so of his life, the person that he hung out with the most was Patti Smith. You know, they'd had a torrid affair in the early 70s. The great play Cowboy Mouth is a collaborative uh, reflection of that, but they did not see each other for 35 years. And then in the mid mid 2000s, they became best friends again. And at the end of the day, when he was dying, she was helping him finish his final novel. Yeah, And it's just a really beautiful story that transcends all of those torn relationships and makes us believe in the power of transcending our limitations. So he goes back to see her and early on their farm is a mess. They've been given all the wrong advice, all the wrong animals. They've got oxen who can't work the sod properly. They don't have any of the right equipment. And you've kind of got two different views of how that can work. You've got the Ambrose, Mrs. Shimmerda approach which is to be resentful and angry and just assume everyone's out to take advantage of you. And then you got the Antonia who ingratiates herself and makes friends with everyone is a quick study is never dwelling on the negative, on the positive and how good she is. And it, with that kind of, you know, pluck yourself up by your bootstraps, um, can do attitude. She, she just makes everything different in a way that her mother's not able to, her father's not able to Ambrose is not able to, although he finally, despite being such uh, so irascible, does support her when she goes off with Larry Donovan, although he then does her wrong, as we almost see coming. But at the end, she's got all these children. And one of the reoccurring tropes you see in American literature and probably in Western literature is the use of the fruit orchard, fruit trees, and the notion of fruitfulness. So I'll give you this scene and I'll give you a counterpoint scene from another famous literary work. So he goes here at the end of the book, this part you talked about and how, how lovely it is and it absolutely is and he talks about now seeing her with her family and walking among the fruit trees of the multiple orchards they planted next to their house and burden says jim says 
She lent herself to immemorial human attitudes, which we recognize by instinct as universal and true. I had not been mistaken. She was a battered woman now, not a lovely girl, but she still had that something which fires imagination, could still stop one's breath for a moment at a look or gesture that somehow revealed the meaning in common things. She had only to stand in the orchard to put her hand on a little uh, crab apple tree and look up at the apples to make you feel the goodness of planting and tending and harvesting at last. All the strong things of her heart came out in her body that had been so tireless in serving generous emotions. It was no wonder that her son stood tall and straight. She was a rich mine of life like the founders of early races. And that, of course, is one of the, it's a chapter ending passage, but that valuation of her as being that part of the landscape, but it's in the fruitfulness. Her life becomes fruitful because she's always fertile in her mind and heart. Things can take root there. In the same way, Jim, who leaves her, leaves the people like her, leaves the land, has a marriage that has no children. And in real life, of course, that doesn't mean anything, but in it's just biology or it's choice, it's whatever. But in fiction, it almost always means a relationship has not been fruitful. And the counterpoint is the chrysanthemums. And John Steinbeck's wonderful story, we have a young farm husband and wife who are happy with each other and they're good people, although he doesn't really understand her and doesn't maybe understand what she can bring with the force of energy and intellect to everything. They've got all these amazing fruit trees and she's incredible at growing chrysanthemums, but they don't have any children. And you understand that at some level, her life has not been fulfilled. It has not been fruitful. And it's not because she doesn't have children. It's just in general, trapped on that farm. There's all those symbols in that story of restraint and trap and boundary and borders that she only escapes when she sends out the chrysanthemum with the traveling tinker. And of course, that's all just kind of put on to get the little money in the pot. So in this story, she is completely fulfilled in her life. And she doesn't have the things that we too easily, even by 1918, say are success. She doesn't have the fine clothes like Lena or Tiny eventually do. She doesn't have all the land acquisitions and businesses like Tiny has. She doesn't have any of that. But what she has is this family that loves her. She loves them and she's happy in that. And so, you know, juxtaposed against what we're going to see in Fitzgerald, Hemingway, Virginia Woolf in the next few years, there's a, there's a kind of beauty to having real world, real life, true expectations instead of thinking everyone gets to be rich and that that's the way you cash in. It's about the cash you earn, not the lives you touch. And, and Anthony is very much opposite of that. Let's uh, switch gears maybe a little bit and talk about the legacy of this novel and the way that it is rooted still in an experience that we all uh, seek that passage there about going down into the cellar. One of the neatest things about what the community of Red Cloud has done over the past 70 years, basically, is that they've preserved the farm that the real life Antonia uh, raised those children on. And her name was Annie Sadolek Pavelka, lived to the age of about uh, almost 90 and, you know, was relatively famous toward the end of her life as being the inspiration for my Antonia. So you can actually go to this farm and recreate that experience of going down into the cellar. And it's just, to me, it's such a tactile reenactment of this kind of beautiful moment that it makes it all the more powerful. Red Cloud has really done a phenomenal job of not just preserving a lot of the Cather sites in this small town of a thousand or so, but also of giving people 
the experience of what the prairies might have been like. One of the things that they do is they have a patch of land called the Willacather Prairie, and you are invited to take a walking trail to kind of go through and experience the exact thing that uh, Jim and, and Antonia might have felt in this uh, tiny rural place. Um, I think that's important because one of Cather's great themes is in everybody's life, no matter who you are, there is room and opportunity for the aesthetic experience, for the artistic experience. That's a theme of almost every single one of those short stories in the Troll Garden. And it's very much true in this novel, because what happens here is Jim is learning, in a sense, that the, that the beauty of memory lies in the aestheticization of personal experience. So there's a moment where he and Lena, for example, go to the opera. And when you go to Red Cloud, you can go to the same opera house and the, the, the same theater that Cather attended. And you can have that experience that they're having when they go to see Camille. Or you can go into the same types of rooms where the blind pianist plays. And you get these little glimpses throughout the novel of how people find the transcendence of art, even against these very grim and stoic circumstances. And, you know, that's a real important theme, I think, in American literature that you don't see as much in other cultures. So Langston Hughes, a substantive portion of his poetry is about the disappearing traditions of what he would have called the Negro arts. We'd call it black arts of jazz music and blues music and how so much right. of the greatest jazz and blues ever played is lost to time forever because it didn't happen in a recording booth. The first blues album is recorded in 1932 and it's almost a changing into a new form even at that point as electrical guitars slowly start becoming available. And so you, you think of all the early great jazz music. If we It predates, you know, it's 1905, 1908 and, uh, Buddy Bolden and people like that down in New Orleans, so much of it's never recorded. And then by the time it is, it's it's been kind of, again, made into this kind of white bread swing type version and ragtime and all. And it's not really the same kind of music that you're really hearing in people who originated it. And, and art has always been shown to be one of the ways that you save a culture, but also that you can leave a culture that's restricting you and move on to something else as well. And it, it is something that's kind of interesting if we think about our writers who've chronicled small town experiences and rural experiences is the times that they tackle it like she does and the times they totally ignore it like Faulkner does. Well, and we should mention, too, that in presenting the rural in this way, that Cather is kind of going against the grain of of the literature of the village, yeah. which kind of takes off around the same time. I mean, this novel comes out one year before Sherwood Anderson's short story collection, Winesburg, Ohio. The idea of the revolt from the village was that all these Midwestern writers were recognizing that there weren't opportunities to aestheticize experience in small towns. And so they were fleeing to the metropolis. Right. And Cather is very much writing against that idea. I think at the time, that's what made her look a generation older than these younger writers, although she and Sherwood Anderson were roughly the same age. 
but it's one of the ways in which she got stereotyped in her day as being a literary spinster or a, a literary grandmother type figure. Well, and we think of the Ezra Pound poems about having to leave the American Midwest and go abroad. And the reason so many writers fled to Europe and to Paris during his time was because they thought that small towns of the Midwest of the United States were so unfriendly to, to art and artistry. And of course, by way of, of pointing that out, we have Hemingway's mother writing him these scathing indictments, to, mm-hmm. as you read in our, our podcast about Sun Also Rises. So. Well, and we should note that Cather didn't necessarily practice what she preached because she did come back to visit Red Cloud, but she certainly didn't live there in her adulthood. And she was uh, much happier being in New York. So a lot easier to nostalgize things from a distance. Exactly. Exactly. It's a lot harder to be close. And, you know, there is this kind of back and forth that seems to occur where you have the retreat from the village and the, the escape from the village stories. And then you'll have a, a counterpoint. So Nick Carraway at the end of The Great Gatsby has got to get back to the Midwest. Now, he might be heading to Chicago or St. Louis he may not, or Kansas City. He may not be headed to small town Midwest. But even so, getting away from the big East Coast city is he's got to find some sanity and some people who've got it all have their priorities and values in the right place a little bit. So you see throughout modernism, that tennis balls kind of hit back and forth. And I think that still continues to this day where we'll have discussions about elections and electoral college and blue versus red and rural versus urban and suburban. And it seems to be just uh, how much that old naturalist idea of how much of who you are is based on your environment you're raised in and that you live in. I think it it demonstrates that we need both of those things. We don't just need one or the other. You know, the the song has a big purple waves of grain as much as no one wants to hear that. (laughs) Well, shall we decide? What would you say, Scott? Is this a great American novel? Absolutely, I would. Um, I believe, and I think there are a lot of people who'd probably argue with this on that. I I would think of, other than the last podcast dealing with Lolita, this might be the one that people most poo-poo out of the ones we've chosen. But it is about an incredibly significant American subject, the subject of immigration. It is a nation of immigrants. Even our indigenous peoples at some point immigrated over from from Asia. It is, I think, about very much American themes. I mean, if you're tracing a line of these kind of Ben Franklin, no matter who you are, you can make yourself into something. Landmarks, you're, you're kind of skipping from Franklin to Frederick Douglass to kind of skimming through the late 1800s. And then you hit this novel which is picking up in that same place before Great Gatsby kind of turns it upside down. And I think where I would argue with the people who wouldn't agree with us is they maybe don't think there's enough at stake. There's enough melodrama. There's not enough dramatic action and there's not enough an arc. And what I would say is it's in its very realism and its patience and the fact that it refuses to give in to all the things a television producer would want you to do that there's a quiet beauty to the novel. I agree completely. I think it's a novel that really appeals to the very mythos of America. So I I think we're very much in consensus. Now, one of the things we like to do on the podcast is find other novels. We call this our canon fodder books that have not really been studied as members or, or books of the canon. And again, when we have canon busters or canon fodder, our job is never to necessarily push a book out to make room for more book and say it's always can expand. And there's a, there's a similar kind of novel from a different experience that you've 
suggested as cannon fodder, Kirk, and that book is? Well, it's called The Bread Givers, came out in 1925. It's by Anzia Yazierska. Uh, it's a great novel. It's about tenement life, and it too, a little darker, but dramatizes the theme of endurance and celebrates assimilation while also maintaining one's sort of cultural heritage. Was this book kind of out of print for a long time? It came back into print, Kirk, or would it just kind of go into very minor printing? It's maybe came out in the jazz age and was sort of recognized briefly in its time, but kind of fell out of favor. But it was rediscovered in the late 70s and 80s and is now really, I think, a valuable book to sort of challenge our ideas of what 1920s literature was all about. So it's an important book in that regard. And it points to the ways that literature only about five years later would become even more politicized during the Great Depression. A couple of books back, we, we tackled Gilead, a novel that's patient and uh, again, not very dramatic. And then this one and dealing with these mature, thoughtful, somber themes in a quiet way. And now, as we've discussed, my Antonia, our next book is one that is almost a polar opposite, although still dealing with Western expansion. And that is Cormac McCarthy's challenging, bloody, thoroughly, I don't even know what the word is. I'm failing for words, which is weird because he never does, but myth-busting novel, Blood Meridian, or The Evening Redness in the West. And so uh, we'll give you the trigger warning. There are no bad words he will not use, and there's no no violent places where he will not go. So be forewarned, traveler. Yet, uh, if you follow us on this journey, I think you'll find it worth your while. We thank you for listening to the Great American Novel Podcast. Please follow us on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're so inclined, it'd be great if you'd leave us a favorable review. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you may enjoy others, such as Master of the Forty, with Kirk and Robert Trogdon, focusing on the short stories of F. Scott Fitzgerald, and reading McCarthy with myself and various guests about the works of Cormac McCarthy. And you can always email Scott and myself at greatamericannovelpodcast at gmail.com. We thank you for listening.